Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. is the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really, really thrilled to welcome Kimberly McLean to the podcast today. Kimberly, she, hers, has been at the forefront of thought leadership about how to combine the best practices of teaching with the benefits of interactive inquiry-based learning, agile thinking, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and communication for over 20 years. Using her master's in education, she has impacted the culture at some of the world's most innovative companies around the world and supported dedicated leaders to step into their power. She specializes in creating safe spaces that encourage a growth mindset, good risk-taking, and listening with curiosity. Kimberly will be working with the Sisters in Crime Equity Project, a year-long series of workshops, webinars, and roundtables that will help us build a library of resources and trainings for our members and for the entire community. The work will center around equity and inclusion and will include writing workshops and prompts for our members to learn how to build a better understanding of issues in their lives and in their writing. Kimberly, thank you so much for being here for this conversation. Thank you for having me. That was delightful. I'd like to wake up every day just to that sort of introduction <laughs> of who I am. Right? I'm, I'm well, really proud of myself. Like, look at you. <laughs> well, you know, it's a great introduction, but there's so much more to talk about yeah. because we've already worked together for a, a little bit and I've been learning from you. Um, but I want to talk about the Equity Project that Sisters in Crime has taken on uh, and is developing and that you are helping lead um, and how you're approaching it. But let's start at the very beginning and talk a little bit more about you and how you got into this work. Um, you are, you come from an arts background. You're a performer. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You've been an actor and you've done improv um, theater. You're also a teacher. Yes. I taught, I taught theater and different versions of theater for a long time, a long time. So these are two of the skills that you bring along with your other training to, to help people uh, create change within themselves. And I love the way you frame this. Can we talk about that just from the very beginning about, about how change happens? Because you have explained to me several times that when um, we start this work around equity and inclusion and belonging, people want policies. They want to fix things. They want, they want the task list. Yeah. <laughs> they want the, you know, what can I do to, to, create change. And, and that's not how you start the process. No. And I I think that, uh, there's a lot of reasons why I don't start the process that way. And one of them is because I've seen that not work over and over again, um, as a member of communities where there is a lot of really good intention. We make our policy, we make our list of things we're going to do. And then the culture doesn't support that policy. Like we haven't changed in order 
to support the changes that we are aspiring to. Um, and so over the, the last few years and decades, as I've done this work, I started realizing that I needed to combine this idea of growth mindset uh, with the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion. And, and by putting them together, it means that we are changing ourselves internally. We're doing our individual work, kind of keeping our eyes on our own paper. And then that just changes the culture that we are part of. We influence the culture by changing ourselves. So I think the work has to start with the individual. Right. I love that. And, and I, I love, because that's powerful to really think about the fact that there isn't a prescription that everyone could take that's going to fix no. this. We've been trying to do that. But what we can do is really work on ourselves and change ourselves. And by being a different person, or, or being in a room differently, by approaching a situation differently, by standing up when you're called on uh, to stand up, um, you can, you can create influence and create change that way, but it's, it's your work that needs to happen first. That's right. And I think that that is empowering or it can be empowering because it allows us to begin to see that change is possible, right? I don't have to change everyone around me necessarily. I have to change myself. And I know that's possible. I know that I can look at myself. I can look at my patterns. I can look at stories that are in my head without my permission. And I can deconstruct those throughout the entirety of my life. And I can see change uh, in myself. And therefore, I can impact change around me. But I can't necessarily force someone else to be different than they are. Or, you know, no matter how much I get on my soapbox and I preach at somebody, that doesn't mean they're going to change. Often they'll become adversarial. So I, I have found a lot of success by just asking people to do the work on themselves and to understand why the work matters and to understand how the work matters and then to understand how that change begins to impact the world around them. Uh, and it's, it's amazing when I'm in organizations and I see the teams and the people that are doing the work on themselves and the change that's happening there versus the other teams that have maybe rejected it or the individuals that are like, I'm not even going to try it. I don't believe it works. Um, mm -hmm. You can see and you can feel the change and you can feel the way that people feel more included and are more included. And the, the sort of snowball effect that that can have is pretty profound. Before we start talking about growth mindset, which is something that just I find so interesting, I, I want to sort of talk about my evolution as I've been dealing with this yeah. um, over over several years of, of working in theater and, and you know thinking about um, about diversity and equity and inclusion and what that looks like and and why it doesn't exist and going through you know white women's tears and going through grief and going through frustration and realizing this isn't about me <laughs> this is about creating change um, and that I'm always going to be a work in progress that there's nothing you know that's that's going to fix, you know, all of these, as you talk about them, the stories that, that were put to our head that we didn't put in there, but that we just believe because somebody told us something. Um, and we have to unlearn and we have to unthink and how that's a hard thing to, to step into, mm -hmm. but it's so empowering to say, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect, but I want to be better. Yeah. Um, I like hearing that reflected back. And I, I think that is what this is about is this, is, this work kind of equity work is not about 
who's good, who's bad? Who do we blame? What do we deny? What are we, you know, who are we going to fight? What are we going to prove that I didn't do or did do that? It really is about like, what have I done? Well, what can I do better? What do I need to learn? Um, and I, I've talked a little bit about this idea of uh, the fish doesn't know about the water it's swimming in. And so I think that a lot of times we don't know the water we're swimming in. We don't know the temperature. We haven't been asked, like, is your water clean? Is your water dirty? You know, like who else is in the water? We just don't have to think about it. We're just in the water swimming and breathing and successfully staying alive. And I think that's how equity work is, is when you're suddenly called to action and, and asked to assess the water that you're swimming in it can be really hard. It can feel really challenging at first. And I think there are these Mm -hmm. different phases that we all go through um, of, uh, you know, it might be getting on your soapbox and being like, I just found out this thing and I'm going to tell everybody uh, kind of what they're doing wrong. And then there's the sort of guilt that happens um, of, I didn't know this was a problem or I didn't realize how big of a problem. And I also think it's important that we remember that when we talk about equity, it isn't just race. I think in America, especially, we have this long history of racial inequity. And so we have to reconcile that and we have to be aware of that. And we also have to understand that that isn't where the work stops, or it doesn't mean that just because we have a sort of diversity numbers in mind of where we want to get that we're done. That's also about uh, all the different parts that make us who we are and how those different parts show up and are included and are valued. And there are different ways that folks show up in the world that are not as valued as other ways. So I think that we also have to remember that that the work is constant because it isn't just about one thing. It's about all things and the way those things intersect. Kimberly Crenshaw talked about, um, talks a lot about intersectionality. And she coined that phrase of the way that you have, you know, uh, if you're a woman, you have some areas that you are likely running into barriers just because of of your gender identity. But then now if you add to that, like you're a woman of color, now you also are dealing with this other part of your identity and layer that on top of being a woman, right? So we start, we have to think about all of the different ways that our identities are being valued or devalued. And some of that recognition can be really hard for us. Yes. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of guilt. And one of the ways I sit with my guilt, and I, I've shared this, I know, with you before, is remembering that I have, not only myself have I done things I'm not necessarily proud of now that I know more, um, and I look at my ancestors who have definitely done things that I don't feel great about, but that I can't sit and get stuck in that guilt, that what that guilt can do for me is motivate me to make changes and to be active Mm -hmm. and to be a voice and to talk about these things, even when it's uncomfortable in order to have some sort of reparation for the damage that myself and my ancestors have done. I don't want to get stuck in guilt because that doesn't serve me or anybody else around me. And it's a fine line, right? It's a balancing act because you don't want to be stuck in guilt, but you also need to acknowledge, you know, privilege and, and people that can trigger some people when they hear that word. But, you know, when, when we're talking about intersectionality Mm -hmm. and you talked about gender identity, uh, there's sexual orientation, there is race, there is religion, there is abilities, there is uh, neurodiversity, there is, uh, you know, education, there is socioeconomic background. All of these factors make us human beings. And in some areas, we have more privilege than others. And everyone has a spectrum. Um, but our society is particularly 
uh, challenged, <laughs> well, on all of these areas, but, you know, misogyny and uh, white supremacy are powerful, powerful, right. toxic parts of the pool. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, working and talking to folks with disabilities, um, you you need to think about that as well. Yeah. And, and the intersectionality of, of that um, identity with other identities and how that can inform and that you can be many things. You don't have to choose one yeah. or the other. Um, that's part of it as well. Well, and you can't often choose one because society is choosing it for you, right? right like, right. like no matter, even if I say like, this is who I am and what I think uh, should be valued about me. We live in a world where that may or may not be true for everybody else. Like someone might look at me and be like, no, I, I actually don't value that part of you. Or I, I wish you were more like this, or I value people right. that are like this. So the more I think that privilege can also play into th that sense of like, what parts of a dominant culture do I have in common? And, and in America, our dominant cultures tend to be white, Christian, male, straight, right? There are all of these ways that we overvalue some parts of identity and, and undervalue other parts of identity. And I think that work in equity, I, I would love if we get to a place in my lifetime where we have a utopian society and we no longer are judging each other for those things or trying to put people in boxes. But in the meantime, I want us to start to become aware of those biases that we have, those stories that we're putting in our head without our permission, those moments where I, I do this work every single day of my life and I'm someone who was sort of born pretty obsessed with equity and how people were treated. So it's something that I feel like I'm 49. So for 49 years, at least I've been really thinking about this and I still catch myself, you know, uh, mm -hmm. have, uh, buying into stereotypes where I catch myself going, Oh, that doesn't seem appropriate. Like these thoughts, these moments, just these little tiny microcosms where I have to be confronted with a belief that I have that maybe I haven't had to look at or haven't had to confront. So it isn't about me being a bad or a good person. It's about me being a person. And, you know, America doesn't corner the market on racism and, uh, you know, misogyny and any of these other things, like all of the different cultures, just humanity, right? We like to have hierarchies. We like to have uh, people that are below us and above us. And we like to name it and know who, who different groups of people are. And we like to belong to the dominant group. We want to be in the in-group. So any of those kind of reactions that we're having are normal human reactions, whether it's guilt or whether it's denial, like whatever it is, that's a normal reaction. And I want us to keep uh, kind of digging deeper and not be afraid of those moments where it feels challenging or it feels hard or I'm looking at myself and the things I'm saying and doing do not align with my own self-image of being a good person, right? And, yeah. and so I think it's yep. really important. To, that's why where the growth mindset comes in is it's really important to dissect that and get away from this binary of good, bad, and understand that most of us, I think, in the world are really good people. And that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes and we don't hurt other people and we don't have areas that we can't see. Like we sometimes have blinders on. Um, I think about the horses that wear the blinders, like so that they can't intentionally see what's going on around them. And so I think some of us have opted into wearing blinders because it's harder to deal with what's going on around us. So I think part of my job is just to slowly, you know, remove those blinders, right? Ask people to just look around and notice what's happening and start to name things and then eventually start to take responsibility for our role in those 
different aspects um, where people aren't equal. Right. And even if you're not directly responsible for the situation, once you see, you can't unsee. So once you see it, you had, you know, you have to do what you can do to, yeah. to fix it. Let's, can we talk about growth mindset? Because I, I love, this is how you start. This is your sort of the ground, the foundation of your work. And I love talking about this because it gives me, it's given me so much to sort of ponder and to think about. And, um, and that's an action is developing growth mindset. And, and, you know, your thesis is, we need to have a growth mindset in order to create this change and in order to change ourselves. So can you talk about growth mindset? Yes, I would be happy to. I love talking about it. So I was introduced to growth mindset um, in two different ways, almost simultaneously, which is probably why I love it so much. One of those ways was an improvisation. So as an improv actor, so I have a bachelor's degree in theater and I've done a lot of um, professional improv. I've gotten paid to make things up on stage here in San Francisco. And part of that world requires you to be really open to the possibilities. And there's a concept of yes and, which means that when someone comes on stage and presents you with an idea, like comes on and says, you know, hey, I really love it here in Hawaii. My job is to agree with that idea rather than argue that idea and say, we're not in Hawaii, we're in Alaska, right? So there's this concept of of hearing what's happening, being open to the possibilities, and starting to explore the what ifs and the yes ands. So, so that as a performer, and when I was pretty young, that happened in my 20s. I was exposed um, to growth mindset in that way, although it wasn't called growth mindset, it was called improv. And then as a teacher, as I was uh, became a teacher, I happened to fall into this really interesting time that uh, we were starting to examine and do research around project-based learning. And project-based learning is sometimes called inquiry-based learning, um, means that instead of giving students like a hard and fast book with lessons, that we give them a question and we ask them to explore and get to that question. So um, for example, mm-hmm. I have a project I did with a lot of my more advanced students on McCarthyism, where they would create a character that was you know, based on some information I'd given them about people living through the McCarthy era. And they would start to create characters and they would create lives for them and they would have diaries for them. And um, by that, we would then start talking about mass hysteria and propaganda. So Mm -hmm. it's helping people to um, kind of go on their own journey in learning. And therefore, you have to have a growth mindset because you're going to hit uh, walls, right? You're going to hit walls. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail, quote unquote. Um, you're not always going to take the path that you think you're going to take or land in the place you think you're going to land. So I saw the impact that that sort of teaching and learning had both on the educators and on the students. And I'm still in touch Mm -hmm. with a lot of my students um, as well. So I get to see them now as adults applying growth mindset. Um, So in this work, I have combined those two ideas and, um, and I'm not the only one that does this. I wish I could take credit, but a lot of folks who have done this work for a long time have noticed that operating from a place of empathy is really kind of where it's at for this work. So by having a growth mindset, it means that you believe change is possible, not just for yourself, but for other people. It, it also means that you believe that everyone's showing up exactly how they are supposed to show up in this moment. We're all gonna be at different places and that's okay. It means that you really are interested in the journey. 
So it isn't just about the end goal and the result. It's what are you going to learn on the way and what barriers are you going to run into and what are you going to learn? So everything becomes a learning opportunity. And that doesn't mean that in the moment there can't be frustration and feelings and, you know, hardships and upsetness, but it means that you get to a place of learning. Everything Mm -hmm. is an opportunity. Um, it means that you are really open to different ideas, even if you don't agree with them, that you're willing to have a conversation, um, willing mm-hmm. to be changed, willing to be open. And I think that that's really important in equity work, because if I come into a conversation with someone where I've already decided they're wrong because they're different, then all we're going to do is argue back and forth. And I'm going to leave very likely not having changed. And they're going to leave very likely not having changed. So coming into this work um, like a curious anthropologist, wanting to learn, wanting to understand, wanting to be changed, wanting to grow means that I get to learn from everything and everyone around me. And it also means that when something goes wrong, that it isn't devastating. It doesn't mean I'm wrong or the process is wrong or what's happening is wrong. It means something went wrong. And I will learn from it and something else will go right. So I think it's a really healthy way just to be in the world. And I also think it takes some work. I think a lot of us have been taught, um, Mm -hmm. and I was a teacher. So, you know, school is very much in most cases about a fixed mindset where it's like you memorize the information, you're either good at it or you aren't. You cannot necessarily learn to get better at something. You're either a math whiz or you're not. Right. And there are all these little boxes that we come to believe are true when, in fact, most of us are much more expansive, much more diverse, much more uh, kind of deep and complex than a fixed mindset that doesn't believe in change would allow us to believe is true. And there's scientific backup yeah. to this. This isn't just, you know, woo-woo San no. Francisco. <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit, but I think that, I think it started, honestly, I think it started out that way. And then people yeah. started noticing, um, I mean, these, there are ancient practices related to this. I, I would say that meditation is not that different than this. Like now we're calling mental fitness, this kind of work, but there have been practices mm-hmm. in place uh, for centuries, but there is science behind it. Um, uh, Carol Dweck is someone who uh, has studied this kind of work in children, uh, specifically in students at, here at Stanford, and has noticed and has all kinds of books and uh, wonderful TED Talk about it and the impact that this idea of growth mindset can have for people. And she's noticed that when when students, for example, run into a problem, if their response to that problem is, oh, I don't have it right now, or I'm going to get this Mm -hmm. later, or I'm struggling in this moment, as opposed to, well, I'll never learn this, right? Uh, That it begins to give them more hope, that they they become more invested in the work, they really want to learn, they get more excited, and that's reflected, you know, doesn't have to just be kids, it's reflected in adults. And then Dr. Charles Lim, who also is based here in San Francisco, who I actually believe used to be in Boston, um, he has done a lot of work with uh, improvisers like me. Uh, he's put me in an fMRI machine. He takes uh, freestyle rappers. So I know some of the people who were in Hamilton, for example, were also in the machine. And he takes jazz musicians, which is part of his background. So all people who have to be able to create while also really being in this place of like, things are gonna go wrong, And Mm -hmm. we have to make the accident a gift, right? So something that could be a problem in other parts of our life, 
when you're improvising on your piano or you're, you're, you know, a freestyle rapping or you're, you're in a scene that you have to be able to make that problem, the gift. And so he's put people in FMRI, FMRI machines. And what he has noticed is that when you are in this place of yes, and um, we often call it a flow state where things are just working and you're saying yes to ideas and you're open to the possibilities and you're learning that the parts of your brain light up that are responsible for self-expression and your own biography and that more parts of your brain light up. So it means that we are engaging lots of different areas of our brain. So Uh, similar to when we're telling stories that different parts of our brain will light up because it's relating to different senses, but also to, you know, past memories. It might be pulling up a a lyric of music, or it might be imagining a, a boat that you were on one time. And then oppositionally, when we are in what is more akin to a fixed mindset is when we allow our inner critic to guide what we're doing. Um, and that's mm-hmm. that, I sometimes call it the angry puppet that's on our shoulder. That's don't do that. Don't say that. People will think you're stupid. People will judge you. And that inner voice, inner critic can be really useful to help keep us from like walking into the street in traffic. Right. 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 Or from saying something offensive, but it also, it like doesn't know the difference. So it's just sort of constantly telling us, warning us, always afraid for us, always worrying for us. And so when you start to do growth mindset work, those two uh, things cannot exist at the same volume. So with growth mindset, you start to move automatically and intentionally into this place of flow and joy and self-expression, right? And you begin to think more like a storyteller. You're sort of seeing everything from the storyteller perspective, from a place of curiosity, from a place of making connections and finding ways for things to work, as opposed to sort of feeling stuck and afraid all the time. And then there's another wonderful scientist who I'm going to simplify in layperson's terms for sure, uh, what this wonderful doctor has talked about. But the idea of like we evolved intentionally to notice when things are wrong. So we evolved intentionally to grab onto problems because we had to remember that that black and yellow snake, for example, is poisonous and could bite us. But we didn't need to remember that the black and yellow butterfly was beautiful to look at in the same way. So our brain needs to, it has evolved to protect us by holding on to negative, but the world around Mm -hmm. us has evolved enough that, you know, I don't have to worry about snakes like I did, you know, thousands of years ago. So our brains naturally go negative. So we have to do some work to teach them new habits and to teach them to be more positive and to create new neural pathways is what we're doing in this work is really noticing like, well, I might've, I might've believed for a long time that women weren't good drivers, but now I need to re-examine that so that every time someone cuts me off, I don't automatically go must be a woman. Um, right. So that I'm really starting to, to intentionally retrain my brain to take a different path. Um, and it's often described as our, our neural pathways are like the super highway. So we learn over time from these stories that were put in our head with or without our permission. There's an easy road. There's an easy way for our brain to go and explain things and problem solve and deal with with something that's wrong. And we have to cut through a jungle with our dull machete to form a new pathway if we want to change behaviors, change thinking. So, and we have to recut that pathway every time. And it might get easier each time, but our brain is going to keep wanting to go super highway. 
So by doing growth mindset work, we start to teach ourselves how to resist the unhealthy urges of the superhighway and start to form new pathways that are our choice. So now we are making choices about how we see the world, about how we deal with the world, about how we interact with the world. So I love that. So the 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 way we were formed or we we've just accepted um, the way the world goes is this super highway that we're saying that's not the best way necessarily. And so you've got to explore other paths, but that's going to take some work. But once you start the work, you it gets easier. It becomes it gets easier, yeah. and it also it's. It's, you know, I love when you talk about we get to do the work. We get to do this. Like, how lucky are we that we live in a world where we get to do this work, right? I mean, there are other parts of the world where they have much bigger things going on. They don't get to sit around and talk about how do we make people feel more included, right? We are at a place and we have the honor and the privilege to get to do this work. And it's exciting. It's fun. It's an adventure. And it makes all of us better people. I think it also will make people better writers, better creators, because it starts to open your mind to all the possibilities in the world and start to say yes to ideas that you have and yes to ideas that other people have. And when you say no to something or you have a boundary for something, you know why, and it is a choice that you're making. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's really different, I think, than how most of us have been taught to operate in the world. Yeah, and it's an active choice. It's not a passive choice. Yeah. When you talk about this and how lucky we are that we get to do this work, Sisters in Crime started 35 years ago. And how lucky are we <laughs> that her founders said, we want to change the world. We want to change um, the way women in crime writing are reviewed and are considered and shelved and everything else. And so started this organization that was about advocacy um, and was immediately inclusive. It didn't exclude men from joining or anyone else. But in those 35 years, we've expanded um, to be more inclusive uh, and have really in the past few years, um, you know, it's both a strategic goal, it's a core value around equity and inclusion, but it's enough to say the words, how do you create action? So the equity project is, is one of the ways Sisters in Crime is creating action. And it's by working with you, creating these workshops and these webinars and having roundtables and creating writing workshops so that we can work on ourselves as individuals, but we can also, as writers, you know, how do you bring this in work into your, into your writing? How do you create a more inclusive cast of characters? Where, you know, what's the difference between being a writer and cultural appropriation? And, and how can you make sure you're not crossing a line? Um, but you're, how can you also gain confidence to be able to write a, a broader spectrum of characters? Uh, you know, I'm, I, that's why we're doing the work. And I'm really excited about the potential of that work. Yeah. And I, I keep wishing that there was a like, quick and easy sort of answer for that. Because I do think that's what I'm hearing yeah. from Sisters in Crime members is that they're hungry for, I want to be more inclusive in my writing. I want to do this work how do I do it? And I think, unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe we have to go back to the, well, you got to do the work for yourself, right? Like you got to do the work on yourself so that as you're writing, you're not writing sort of 
in, from stereotypes, or you're not writing right. because you think you're supposed to, or you're not right. writing characters from historically marginalized communities always as um, in trauma, right? And that right. we're really thinking about what parts of our lives can we bring in and, and make more expansive? And then what parts of the world do we need more understanding about to even be able to tackle and write? And I think this is a really complex question. And I think that mm -hmm. I, I look forward to over the next year, really having conversations with um, authors. And I know I've been talking to some of my friends that are in different communities and, and asking them questions about it. I was on the phone earlier with someone and saying, you know, you're a writer. Talk to me about your process um, showing up in the world as a woman of color, as someone who identifies as non-binary, um, you know, at different points in their life, like how do you, and someone who's adopted as well. So how do you talk about, you know, being adopted by a family that is a different racial and ethnic background? And how does all of that play into your writing? And what they said to me was, it's incredibly personal. My writing is all from my heart. And so they are thinking about how, like what the question that, that she had for me was, how do you write in a way that isn't from your heart and from your own experience? So I feel like there are just so many interesting conversations that we're going to be able to have and so many perspectives that if we stay open to them, we can learn from, even if mm -hmm. we disagree, even if someone comes in and says, you can never write X, right? Uh, I think that there are lots of opportunities for us to get curious um, and learn from different people and hear from lived experience and uh, really learn from each other because I don't think there is a one right answer. I think there are going to be different answers for different people in different situations. Um, and I think that's right. really and frustrating, I, right? Like I do think that there's a, a wish that we could just say, here's the, the, the list of 10 things that you need to do in order to write diverse characters, whether that's, you know, racially or ethnically diverse, or, you know, we're talking about gender identity or abilities, right. And body types, like how are we going to write about people that might be different from us, have a very different lived experience than us and do so in a way that's additive to the work and to the conversations um, and not reductive. And, and I think that's tough. Well, it's really tough. And it's also for me, I'm very mindful of the fact that so many voices have not been heard. So we haven't centered a black woman telling a black woman's story in a thriller. We have centered white people telling a black person's story or, or having a black character that may or may not, you know, uh, be at the forefront of a novel, but to, but we're, we've, we still have so much work to do to give people with different perspectives the platform mm -hmm. and and the opportunities um, that you know we're we're just at that point uh, and and we can't let up on that work because I think we can regress really easily. But at the same time, how do we make sure everyone? is is mindful of this if it's not your story to tell how do you yeah. you know do you step aside or do you give it you know do you do you tell it differently um um from a different lens i i, I agree with you this is going to be very complicated but it's also uh i'm really glad that we're doing this work now because we are in a time when own voices literature is taking off 
but I worry that it's a phase and not uh, not here to stay. You know, it's a trend that's mm-hmm. going to go away unless we all pay attention and we all demand um, that these, you know, writers have continue to have opportunities. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where, when we start doing that work on ourselves and this becomes a real internal value of ours, instead of just like, I'm doing this because I don't want to get in trouble, which is sometimes right. the first, the way that people first start into this work. And I think that's fine. If what you're saying is, well, I don't, I don't want to get yelled at, or I, I don't want to you know, get in trouble. That's not too far from, I don't want to hurt other people. Right. And then the next step to that is like, oh, now I have to look at myself to understand how not to hurt other people. So I feel like once it becomes a real internal core value, you can't stop noticing it. Like you said earlier, once you see it, you can't unsee it. So even just asking yourself the question of like, am I the right person to write this? Like that is a a big step because there was a, you know, there are still people, I think, and there was definitely a time where that wasn't even part of a conversation. Um, for right. whoever was in charge of the writing or the dominant writers, there might've been other people going, oh no, should you write this story? But that wasn't a question that that maybe the folks writing were actually having to ask themselves or wanting to ask themselves. So even that we're at a place where more authors are saying like, I don't know, should I tell this? How do I tell this? You know, what's, what's the right way to do this? Who needs to check right. this for me? That feels like huge progress. And I agree with you. I don't want this just to be token, right? I don't want us just to do it until we stop feeling like we might get in trouble. I want yeah. to be constant. And it, it feels like um, specifically after George Floyd, that we sort of moved into this sense of triage, right? Where we have to, we have to just stop the bleeding, right? We have to just stop the trauma. And that's an easy place to stop, right? You can easily bandage someone's arm and then be like, good luck. Hope you, hope you get better. Right. But what we're asking now is like, right. But now you have to do the recovery. You have to make sure the bonus set, right. You have to uh, do the work, the physical therapy after, right. We don't just get to say, well, we triaged it. We talked a little bit about some of the problems in America specifically, and now we're done. We've opened our eyes. And I think it would be a real shame to close them or look away. Um, right. It does a huge disservice to people that have been telling us for a long time that these problems exist. And I think that with an organization that is so committed to women specifically and, and supporting women, that this group already has a little more buy-in, right? And a little more understanding of mm-hmm. uh, if you don't make space for these voices, for alternate voices, then those voices won't be heard. And so we've already made some space, right? Uh, With Sisters in Crime. And so I think that this group of people, it will be so much easier to go, yeah, I can apply what it was like to be a a woman um, in this field, trying to get ahead. I can now very easily just turn my head slightly and understand that, oh, it's like that and maybe double for a person from this group. Um, So I think that, that Sisters in Crime is already a little bit ahead of the game if we're willing to think about things in that way and and use our empathy in that way. Um, And sympathy, I think it's important to define the difference. Like sympathy is, I see that there's a problem, I feel bad about it, but I'm standing back here. It's kind of keeping it at arm's length. Where empathy is really like, I'm in it with you, right? Even if it's not my lived experience, I wanna be here with you. I wanna feel it, I wanna understand it. And that's why I I choose empathy constantly, right? I really want to be an empathy. I really want to understand. I don't just want to feel bad from a distance and hope that it solves itself. Right. Right. It is the dominant cultures that have to solve it. It isn't the people who are experiencing it, right? We can't ask people of color to fix 
racism, right? You can't, they they can't, like the people of color cannot fix racism. Uh, It has to be, you know, the people who are expressing the racism that have to fix it. And uh, I think that's true for all of the different kind of isms that we have that you can't ask the people who are being oppressed or experiencing this different kind of discrimination to also be the people who teach us how to stop it, teach us how to change it, also expend the energy to be out on the streets, like, you know, as activists, also writing the books, also holding the classes. Like, uh, it's one of the reasons why I do this work is I feel like, you know, I am, I am a white woman. Uh, I am a cis woman. I was born, uh, Uh, with the same gender that the doctors assigned me, like I identify with the gender doctors assigned me, which is female. Um, I'm straight as far as I know, although I hope that with growth mindset, I'd be open and willing to expand. Um, So I have a lot of, I was raised Christian, right? I speak English as my first language in America. So I already am part of a lot of dominant groups. So it's really easy for me to come in with all of that privilege and start doing this work. In a sense, I often feel like I'm the litmus test. And I also, I can take the hits, right? I I can take the hits because I'm not expending as much emotional energy and and maybe emotional tax as other people from more marginalized communities. And that doesn't mean I don't experience discrimination. As a woman, I definitely have. Um, I I also have disabilities. So I've also experienced um, in that way, I'm Mm -hmm. a woman with a uh, what I guess is considered a larger body, although I think it's fine. It's a normal size to me. It's my body, so it feels good. So I have had moments of discrimination, but not mm-hmm. in the same way that uh, people from more intersectional groups have. So I can go into a job interview and I can bet that the reason I didn't get a job has n- nothing to do with my skin tone, right? My skin right. color is not going to prevent me from getting a job. Um, I can choose because I have an, in, most of my disabilities are invisible. I can choose to disclose or not. So I can pretty much count on mm, that isn't going to prevent me from getting a job or getting a relationship, right? getting things I want. Right. So I think that it's just really important that we become aware of our own little uh, water that the fish is swimming through and, right. and just start to notice, like, what are what are other people's lived experiences like? And I again, I think writers, authors, readers who are in this kind of world are already primed to want to do that and already doing it in so many ways that it's a really easy thing to adapt those skills to this kind of work. Yeah, I love the passion that you have for this <laughs> in the conversation. And I think when I'm hearing this, what I'm also thinking for myself is, um, don't feel guilty about where you've had privilege or, or that you, you've screwed this up in the past, <laughs> like, you know, own it and, and keep moving forward. I mean, it's, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to have made mistakes. Um, but it's the, it's the intention and it's the work that's important. Yeah. And I think that, uh, like, I think what you're talking about now is intention and impact, right. Of like, I have done lots of things where I intended to be thoughtful or helpful or delightful or look how charming and funny I am. And the impact of that has sometimes been hurtful. And I have Mm -hmm. to reconcile that and I have to acknowledge that. And I have to believe when someone tells me I hurt them, that I hurt them. And and I think it's okay for me to feel bad about that. I think I should feel bad about it. I hurt somebody. But what I can't do is believe that they are saying I'm a bad person and then become defensive. 
or start to wallow in my guilt of like getting stuck of like, yes, I'm a terrible person. I won't even say anything anymore. I can't even have conversations. I have to really own that I'm still learning. I'm still learning and that everyone makes mistakes and that some of my mistakes are probably connected to my privilege. But why would any of us be good at this when most of us have not been taught how to have these conversations, how to think about this? We've all been asked to assimilate, to uh, adapt and adjust to whatever the dominant culture is. So this is a new skill set. It's picking up a guitar and being asked to play, you know, something incredibly complicated, never having had a lesson, but knowing that guitars exist. Like, I know how they exist. I know how to hold it, I think, but I don't know how to play it. So we are aware that diversity and equity are out there. We understand that justice is part of our commitment and community, right? We we understand how important it is for people to feel included and belong, but we haven't really been asked to explore our role in that or to dig mm-hmm. deeply into the ways that we have contributed to that. I like to believe I'm a great person who's never done anything hurtful and all the problems are with all the other white ladies, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm one of the good ones. I'm not doing that. Right. But that's just not the truth. That's just not the truth. Right. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of really great work and still I make mistakes. And so yeah. being in that growth mindset and understanding that in order to learn, I have to make mistakes, but I also have to be willing to apologize and mean it. I have to be authentic about my learning and my growth. And I have to trust that when I hurt somebody, it's my responsibility to heal that in whatever way I can. Right. And it's not up to that person to accept your apology or to make you feel better. That's not their, you know, you need to do the work and own it. Yeah. 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 I, um, I, I want to talk about what the equity project is, Hmm. uh, because I'm pretty excited about this. It's a very ambitious project. Um, we started with, uh, some intro workshops and we got a leadership trainings because sisters in crime has 60 chapters worldwide. Uh, and we have volunteers and every chapter has a board and volunteers. So we wanted to create a track for leadership. Um, to learn how to do things for individuals. Mm -hmm. And we also want to recognize that we have writers. And so there's creativity involved with this. So we need to, we need to talk about that part, have writing workshops. Um, And so you are putting together uh, webinars, you're putting together workshops, we're going to be having some panels so that people can sort of we can learn from groups of people about their experience or, you know, have conversations, uh, uh, deep conversations about things. And we're going to be um, editing all of these live events into um, asynchronous learning modules so that people will be able to take a track, take the leadership track or take the writing track or take the, you know, the growth track and, um, and take different lessons in different classes. So you, I mean, it's a pretty bold, uh, initiative that's that, uh, again, I'm so happy that sisters in crime is doing it with, a um, with our board leadership and with the Jedi committee that we have leadership, um, you know, and, and some really tremendous people. What excites you the most about this project? Uh, all of it. Um, I think, you know, what, what right now, I think it is different at different times, but right now what's exciting me is that I have been reaching out to people for the the panels, um, to be able to come in and talk and everyone I've spoken to has been so incredibly excited. Like just the fact that they're even being tapped 
to have this conversation. Yeah. And the first people I'm reaching out to are folks that are uh, writers, perhaps not in mystery uh, or crime, but they are writers who are people of color or who have disabilities um, or who somehow have identities that I would consider historically excluded or marginalized. And um, mm-hmm. they've just been so excited to be invited to talk to people and to have their voice heard. And so every time I have a conversation with someone, I feel like I learned something just in the conversation. They uh, widen my lens and my perspective. Um, and I'm just having fun. I'm like, oh my gosh, I would I would love to do this once a week. Like there's just so many wonderful voices and so many yeah. people. And so uh, I'm having a lot of fun reaching out to the connections I've made over the years and being able to say, hey, I want you to come in. And also to be able to say that that you will be paid that I'm paying you for this work because there is a lot of expectation on folks to educate free of charge. So also being able to say that Sisters in Crime, you know, as we were having conversations about bringing me in, that this is one of the values. And if this is a value of an organization, you do have to put some time and money behind it. Mm -hmm. So I love that I get to call people and say, what do you want to talk about? What do you wish people understood? What do you wish people knew? What do you wish we were talking about when it comes to mysteries and writing and crime? And uh, and it's really exciting. So I'm looking forward to sharing those with people. And of course the workshops. I mean, I love teaching so much and I'm really excited about the people I've talked to as well about coming in and doing workshops. So uh, the content and the, the knowledge that they have is just really really cool to think about learning from other people. Um, and the way that I think that that can fit into not just sort of the personal values of people at Sisters in Crime, but then the creative values. Um, right. I'm just, right. I'm excited. I, I, I like being the bridge between, uh, these two kind of places, right. Getting to be part of Sisters in Crime and learn and understand, but then also being this bridge to bring other folks in and sort of make connections and be able to step back a little bit so that it isn't always my voice and my perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also love that you're developing um, with input from a lot of people, writing prompts that will be, you know, every month have different, you know, focuses yeah. or, or, or themes or whatever um, so that people can use it for fiction or for self-reflection or for journaling. I mean, nothing's graded, nothing's going to be adjudicated. I mean, it's just, here's, as writers, here's an opportunity to write a character from a different point of view or to use what you learned in this um, roundtable to, to you know, create conflict or, or whatever you want to do. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well, to challenging the writers. Yeah, yeah. And some of the prompts, because it isn't just coming from me, it's coming from other people, uh, they're exciting. So I'm also looking forward, I think, to, like, I'm really fortunate that I have a, a job. I've created this job for myself and I have this position in the world where I get to share knowledge, but I also learn a lot from the work that I'm doing. So mm-hmm. in all the workshops I'm learning and, and all of the roundtables, I know I'll learn. So in all the writing prompts, me participating, I'll learn. So I feel really fortunate that I get to, in this work, sort of walk the walk, that I really try to practice the things that I'm asking other people to practice, and I get to have um, opportunities to learn as well as teach. Well, I look forward to the, uh, as we're all developing habits around growth and change and, and committing to change 
um, and, you know, getting coaching and, and everything else. I, you know, I, I'm looking forward to this project and seeing how it works and how, how we develop it. And what I, uh, really admire and value about working with you is that you are, uh, you didn't come in here with a formula and say, well, this is what I always do. You sort of said, well, this is a unique organization. Let me, as I'm learning more about the organization, pivot a little bit, develop a little bit, make it so that your members are getting the most out of this project. Um, and I think that that's just such a gift to all of us. Oh, thank you for saying that. And that's part of that growth mindset, right? Being able to be like, oh, I thought I had an idea, but I think I need to change it. Uh, and it's really, it's a, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, and I, and yeah. we've been working together now for a few months. I feel like I've gotten to meet with different members from different committees. Um, and I really appreciate the uh, excitement to learn and the willingness yeah. to share information with me and the willingness to um, offer advice or teach me words even, right? As I'm learning kind of the more about the writing world, uh, I feel like this community has already been very open and, and excited, which isn't always the case when I go into organizations. So that's why I keep saying like, I have a lot of positive feelings about what I think is possible for Sisters in Crime to be on the, the cusp of change and innovating right. and showing other organizations as a thought leader, showing other organizations what is possible and also right. what is expected, right? We are, yeah. we are no longer tolerating certain ways of uh, the status quo, right? We are no longer willing to accept that you can only have one writer like this and one writer like this, that we are, we are no longer accepting that as our truth. We are working to change it. Well, and I think one of the strengths of sisters in crime is when we don't do something well, or when we make a mistake, we stop, we apologize and we fix it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we aren't holding ourselves up to saying we're perfect at this point. Uh, what we are saying is as an organization, we're committed to this growth and this change. Yeah. And we're, we're committed to creating resources for our members and eventually for the entire community around this. Um, and so that we can be leaders, but we're, we're not saying that we're that without the work. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I right. think it's important too. like, I'm excited for, we have a survey that we're working on. That's going to go out to the, the community where I'm really excited. So I'll put a plug in for that now because I want people to share information. So we'll be sharing a mm -hmm. survey, um, in the next few weeks that will be asking for experiences and really honest experiences. So I wanna learn about who the community is, what the community needs, um, what the experiences have been, what we need the experiences to be. And so really just an opportunity to share that lived experience um, and give myself and all of you then a sense of like, where are we already doing incredible work around equity and inclusion? And mm -hmm. where are some of the bumps? And right. where are some of the real pitfalls? Like, oh, this has to be addressed immediately. And, right. and that's where some of that action, I think, will start to come. So it's okay if in the beginning we're spending some time figuring out how to do this and almost triaging ourselves a little bit, you know, really looking at ourselves, taking our time, making a sort of mental adjustment about how this is all going to happen over the next year, how this is going to work and getting ourselves bought into this and then the the sort of work, right, of problem solving and policy will will happen as we learn. Like that sort of happens naturally as we go. So there will be opportunities for those people who need that more concrete 
what are we doing, that those will be happening as well along the way as we continue to learn. Well, Kimberly, I look forward to more conversations as this year progresses. And I'm grateful for this first conversation to introduce people to the Equity Project and have them learn about you and growth mindset and start thinking a little bit. Um, And at the beginning, these programs are are for Sisters in Crime members, but as I said, eventually they will be open um, to the community. But if you want in on the ground floor, join Sisters in Crime and, and come to the workshops and get the writing prompts and everything else. But do you um, mind talking for a minute about what you're excited about? I got to talk about what I'm excited about. I'm excited about creating a space where people, um, you know, brave space, safe space. And we talk about that, but where people um, can say, I am i don't want to make this mistake or am I making a mistake and learning, um, where they can be vulnerable and supported, but also encouraged to grow and to change. Um, so I'm just, as a leader, I'm excited about that. As a writer, I'm excited about the opportunity to have these, these complicated conversations mm-hmm. um, and, you know, to really dive in to a nuanced conversation about writing in 2022 and what that looks like and how we can um, create a, a world that is better for everybody uh, and really does things. So I'm, I'm excited about that as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time and for prioritizing, not just this work, but talking about this work. Oh no, my pleasure. And again, this is the first of many conversations. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.